If you're new with us, we're working our way through Luke's gospel. We've been saying that for several weeks now, and we have arrived at the scene of the crucifixion after many weeks. It's an amazing text. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we look at it. Father, I resonate with the psalmist who says, I will tell of your righteous deeds, though they are past my knowledge. There's so many wonderful things in this text in front of us that we'll be pondering the rest of our Christian lives, trying to apply it in manifold ways. We pray that you would open up our eyes to behold the wonderful things that are here and transform us by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've probably played uh, the word association game before where someone throws out a word and you immediately say the first thing that comes to mind. So if I were to say Steve Jobs, you might say Apple, Einstein, theory of relativity, or perhaps comment on his hair, right? I'm really jealous of it. Michael Jordan, yeah, basketball, the goat. Uh, Tiger Woods, golf. Michelangelo, Sistine Chapel, right? Or a Ninja Turtle for others. The New York Yankees, no comment, yeah? If you were to say the word Jesus, to people around the world today, what comes to the mind of most people immediately is cross, his death. All over the world, he is associated with a symbol, this symbol of the cross. John Knox, the reformer, said to remember Jesus is to remember first his cross. His identity is tied to his death. And the whole gospel of Luke has been moving to this moment from Simeon, who spoke to uh, uh, spoke about the, the anguish that he would endure and the anguish that his mother would experience, to the predictions that Jesus made about this moment, to the parables that Jesus told about the son being uh, killed and so on. Everything has been building up to this climactic moment, the most important event in human history. It reveals how terrible sin must be, but how wonderful God's love must be as well. Augustine put it well when he says the cross is the pulpit from which Christ preached God's love for the world. And that's what we get to look at today. Jesus speaks three times from the cross after speaking once on the way to the cross. We're going to look at what he says on the way to the cross in two of those uh, words that he mentioned from the cross. And then on Good Friday, Lord willing, I'll pick up in verse 44 as he gave that third word from the cross and we'll consider what he said there. And it's the voice of Jesus that we're paying attention to. And we can walk through this text with, in three simple parts. First of all, we see Jesus' prophecy. Secondly, Jesus' prayer. And thirdly, Jesus' promise. And in each of these, what you see Jesus doing is fulfilling what we call the threefold office of Christ. Prophet, priest, and king. So first of all, Jesus' prophecy. It comes as he's on the way to the cross. It comes as he says a word to some women who are mourning. But before we get to those ladies, we see that there is a particular individual that's called on to do something very special, very unique, and that is carry the cross for Jesus. There is a guy who is, is seized, Simon of Cyrene, who had come in from the country, and Jesus is unable to carry his cross because of what he has endured already. And so Simon is asked to carry the cross for Jesus. Luke doesn't record the scourging that took place. Matthew and Mark do. And this is, of course, why Jesus cannot carry the cross. Isaiah the prophet said that he was marred beyond human semblance. And that's quite remarkable as you think about what 
he must have endured already because Jesus was 30 or so. He was in great shape from all of the walking and, all of his, and from his occupation. But now this 30-year-old stout carpenter cannot carry this beam. As it's placed on his bloody back, it's taken and given to this guy from present-day Libya in North Africa. That's where Cyrene was. And he is now following Jesus, literally doing what Jesus said earlier, to take up a cross and follow him. He's quite literally doing that, giving us a vivid picture of what it means to follow Jesus along the Via Della Rosa or the Way of Sorrows. That's how the drama begins. Simon likely becomes a Christian, along with his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, who are mentioned in Mark's Gospel. And in Romans 16, Rufus is mentioned. And it seems that this whole family were great leaders in the early church. And you can imagine them sitting around the table telling this story. Think about that old spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Simon could say, oh, I was there. I carried his cross. Others were there too. We see in verse 27, they were mourning. There's a great multitude of people and women who were lamenting. So the scene is very somber. It's very intense. It's very emotional. Luke has made special mention of women. Uh, we've noted that already in our study. And now we have another occasion where Luke includes this particular moment when Jesus speaks to, as he calls them, the daughters of Jerusalem. These were likely not the female disciples from Galilee, but a different group of ladies who were literally from Jerusalem. And Jesus speaks to them as representing all of Jerusalem. And what he does, which is really amazing, as Jesus is on his way to the cross, he's concerned about them. He's concerned about their future. And so he makes mention of this terrible day that's coming in which judgment is going to come upon Jerusalem. That's going to be so bad, he says, it's, it's going to be better that you, you don't have any kids because then the suffering would be more intense. It's going to be so bad, he says, that people would prefer death to life and they'll ask the mountains to fall upon them. What is, what is all this about? Well, we've already looked at this in a couple previous passages. This is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. That's going to be horrific. And Jesus says, I want you to be aware of this. So he, he doesn't thank the ladies for mourning for him, but rather he gives them sort of a mild rebuke and a tender warning so that they don't have to experience this coming judgment that's coming. And then Jesus gives a very interesting word when he says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now the green wood represents Jesus, and the dry wood represents Jerusalem. And we all know that dry wood is more flammable than, than green wood. And Jesus is basically saying, if an innocent man, myself, if green wood is about to be thrown into the metaphorical fire, uh, or thrown out on the, onto the cross, what will happen to people who actually deserve judgment? That if you think this moment is bad, what is it going to be like then? And we've looked at how Josephus has recorded that destruction of Jerusalem, how horrific it was. But most Christians, according to history, did flee Jerusalem and scatter the gospel around the world. So Jesus' word on the way to the cross is that there's going to be a judgment coming and you should prepare accordingly. And as we've noted, the destruction of Jerusalem is a type or a pattern of the final judgment that is to come. And we're not called to flee our city, but actually to flee to Christ now so that we don't have to fear judgment to come. Jesus is saving us in many ways. And one of the things he saves us from 
is the wrath and judgment to come. So that's Jesus' first word. It's a word of prophecy that does come true. He is the true prophet. But secondly, there is the prayer of Jesus, right? As Jesus then eventually goes to the cross, and he's, as Isaiah said, he would be counted among the transgressors. He will be considered a criminal, though he's not a criminal. And he's placed alongside, verse 32, of two other criminals who were put to death with him. He's put to death at a place called the Skull, or Skull Hill. A place that historians tell us looked like a skull and probably had skulls lying around from all of the crucifixions. Often we sing hymns about Calvary. Calvary. Calvary is taken from the Latin word calva, which means skull. So when we sing about Calvary, you're singing about the skull. Where Jesus was put to death. Interestingly, at the place of the skull, Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. That was the the proto-evangelion, the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. That one would come from the seed of woman to crush the head of the serpent. The site for crucifixions was usually already set up. The uprights would remain in place. All that was needed was the cross beam. And you notice how we've just went from the trial last week immediately to the crucifixion, and that's because there was no long system of appeals. Once condemned, you're taken out immediately to be executed. Jesus would die, as these crucified people would, by means of suffocation or possibly a combination of things, exhaustion, suffocation. The, The person would no longer be able to hold up their chest cavity, This means of death was not even uh, allowable for Romans. They were told to not even talk about it in front of their children. Garland, a commentator, describes some of the horrific experience of it when he says the victim was stripped of all clothing which increased public abasement. Not only does the victim suffer excruciating pain, thirst, and the torment of insects burrowing into the open wounds, which he could do nothing to prevent, but he must also endure the shame of jabs of spectators poking at his bodily parts and mocking when he is unable to control bodily functions. And you got these soldiers who were wicked who probably were uh, inventing their own evil to do to these victims. It's terrible. But notice how the Gospel writers, verse 33, say very little about all of that. All Luke says is there they crucified him. That's it. I mean, we're up to 23 chapters now. We've been waiting for this moment. And all that is said about this moment is there they crucified him. Why do the gospel writers not say more? Because the other writers are also restricted and reserved in what they actually say. And I think one of the things that this shows us is that the goal for reading about the crucifixion is not to feel sorry for Jesus or to simply have a sympathy for Jesus. That's fine. But I think some people think You know, if I feel sorry for Jesus, then I can feel good about myself. But the goal is not to feel sorry for Jesus. We're not just to see Jesus as the perfect sufferer. We are to see him as the perfect Savior. You see, the issue is not exactly what did he experience in these agonizing moments? What were the bugs like? And what what were the nails like? And all of these sorts of things. The issue is what did his suffering achieve? What did the, the cross accomplish? Even in the epistles, when you read later, we don't find three or four verses explaining all that he went through. What we see the writers doing is describing what his death achieved. It's what it accomplished. And so Peter, for example, says, For Christ also suffered for sins, 
That's why he's suffering. It's for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. That's what he's doing on this cross. He's bringing you and I to God. Or as Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Why is he doing this? It's for your sake. You see, there's an eternal difference in sympathy for Jesus as a sufferer and faith in Jesus as your substitute. See him as your substitute. Put your faith in him as Savior. And he will save. I mean, notice the heart of Jesus, the heart behind his salvation. In verse 34, as he prays for his enemies, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now this prayer doesn't mean that those putting him to death are somehow forgiven, that they're guiltless. They need to repent and receive forgiveness of sins. But we do see the amazing heart of Jesus, don't we? We read elsewhere in the Bible that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What do you think your mouth would speak in this moment? I don't think mine would speak this. It's not a word of bitterness. It's not a word of hate. It's not a word of revenge. It's a word of love. Father, because that's the heart of Jesus. In his dying moment, in his worst, most agonizing moment, Jesus is not praying for himself even. He's praying for others. While he's enduring this horrific death, the soldiers are there casting lots for his clothing, fulfilling Psalm 22, verse 18. They're dividing his garments. It's a very shameful scene as Jesus has been reduced to nothing. All he has is his clothes, and now they're casting lots for his clothes. I've experienced nothing like this. I think the closest thing I've experienced to this kind of thing is when you go to uh, the hospital and they got to put you under and they put that awful gown on you and then they put all your clothes in a bag and you think, I hope I wake up and I can put those clothes back on. You, you feel totally out of control, totally in their hands. You're reduced to nothing. And here is Jesus, reduced to nothing, the one who left glory, who was rich for our sake, becoming poor, so that through his poverty we might be rich in him. And the people stood there watching, and the rulers scoffed at him. He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. We see mockery after mockery of Jesus on the cross. It's in line with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, that the cross for some people is foolishness, but to others who see it is the power of God. Here they're mocking Jesus. They're telling, if you really are the Christ, why don't you save yourself? If you're the Messiah, I mean, Messiahs win. Messiahs don't die on a cross. Why don't you just save yourself? But they don't know what they're saying. They're actually uh, saying more than they realized. Because it's because Jesus stayed on the cross that he is saving us. He could have exercised power and come down from the cross. But the good news of grace today is that we're Christians not because Jesus came down, but because he stayed up. He stayed on the cross for us. He drank the cup for us. That's the only way we could be saved. Contrary to popular opinion, our morality cannot save us. Religion in and of itself cannot save us. Our parents' faith cannot save us. No other person can save us. Knowing a few things about the Bible can't save us. Only the atoning work of Jesus on the cross can save us. And Jesus is staying on the cross to do that. 
And sadly, many uh, in, in the crowd, like today, are blinded to the truth. And here in this case, they're fulfilling, again, another text in Psalm 22, as the psalmist forecasts Jesus having opponents that are reviling him. And then the soldiers join in the mocking, verses 36 and 7, bringing him sour wine to drink, fulfilling Psalm 69, verse 21. And in that particular context, David's enemies give him sour wine to drink. They have a hatred for David the way these have a hatred toward the ultimate son of David. Offering him this drink and repeating again, why don't you save yourself? As they mock Jesus as a failed king. How can you be the Messiah? And the reality is, Jesus is winning on the cross. He's winning at people from every tribe, people, language, and nation. And then Luke adds to the irony that there's an inscription put over his head, king of the Jews, and they're right. He is the king of the Jews, but he's not the king they expected, and he's not the king that they wanted, but he is the king that they needed. They think that crucifixion proves Jesus is not the king, but the reverse is true. It qualifies him to be the king. So here is Jesus praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's been said before that to err is human, but to forgive is divine. Here it is with Jesus. Divine forgiveness. As they nail him to the cross, this is what Jesus prays. His prayer is not for himself. It's for those who hate him, those who mock him. It's for the world. J.C. Ryle says, As soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. Now, the question is often raised, for whom is Jesus praying? At the very least, he's praying for these Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross and were mocking him. But the Jewish priests were also present, and the religious leaders were there. Surely they're included as well. And these two groups of people represent, don't they, the Jew and the Gentile. In other words, this prayer is offered to anyone. Anyone can be forgiven of their sins by faith in Jesus. Jesus' word here on the cross demonstrates the purpose for him dying on the cross. His enemies said, crucify him, and Jesus says, forgive them. In him, Paul says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is probably why the prayer of Jesus is open-ended, is because it's extended to the whole world. In other words, anyone can get inside of the word them. Spurgeon put it like this, Now into that pronoun them, I feel that I can crawl. Can you get in there? <laughs> oh, by a humble faith, appropriate the cross of Christ by trusting in it and get into that big little word, them. You can get into that big little word, them. There's a royal pardon held out for everyone who does. As we often sing, now the curse, it has been broken. Jesus paid the price for me. Full the pardon he has offered. Great the welcome that I received. The cross is the pulpit from which Christ is preaching God's love for the world. And what's he preaching here? At this pulpit, you can have forgiveness. This is the model and basis for our forgiveness of others, is it not? We'll be kind to one another, tenderhearted, Paul says, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. And one guy who crawled into that blessed pronoun them received a great welcome one, on that day as we turn next to Jesus' promise that he makes to this thief on the cross. The mockery continues, this time even from one of the criminals 
who is hanging on the cross with him. As he says as well, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And he too is blinded by the reality of who Jesus is. And then the other criminal has the wisdom to recognize how ridiculous this rebuke was, as he says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? You couldn't have two different approaches here, from one thief to the other. It seems that this, at this moment, God is awakening this particular thief. He recognizes that Jesus has done nothing wrong, but actually they deserve their punishment. The punishment fits the crime. And he declares Jesus innocent. He's yet another voice in chapter 23 that's declaring the innocence of Jesus. And yet he's the only one who has the spiritual eyes to see things rightly. God is opening up his eyes in this moment. If you like, God is answering Jesus' previous prayer, Father, forgive them, in the case of one particular thief on the cross. He is appropriating that grace in this moment in a very dramatic and unforgettable way. As he goes on to add, not just that Jesus is innocent, but then he has this prayer. It's amazing that he even has all of his faculties in this dying moment. It's divine grace at work in his heart when he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a far cry from the previous guy's comment. That's a far cry from where that thief was yesterday. Now in this moment, in his dying moment, he's calling on Jesus as the psalmist calls upon God who remembers his covenant mercy to his people. So we read in Psalm 106, Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. And Jesus responds with this word of assurance, Truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. This is really amazing, isn't it? Jesus is so good at saving people. He can save a person while he's on the cross. <laughs> and this, this, this thief becomes, as we usually come to thief on the cross, becomes the convert on the cross. He receives grace as the, the last second on the shot clock goes off. <laughs> right? Now, I think these two thieves, we could say, represent all of humanity. Two thieves make two different decisions and experience two different destinies. And the question is put before all of us, what will you do with the man on the middle cross? What will you do with him? And if you can pray like the believing thief, Jesus will receive you into his kingdom. Or you can die in unbelief. But this text is put here for us, and you're here today so that you don't have to die in unbelief. You can embrace this Savior. It's encouraging that this thief gets saved. That gives me hope. Doesn't that give you hope? Spurgeon says that Jesus went through the gate of paradise with this thief, and he says, I bring a sinner with me. He's a sample of all the rest. Now I'm going to bring a sample with me, and that's who's coming into paradise. Jesus loves to save people, and he's good at saving people. And he saves unlikely people at unlikely moments. He works salvation, as the psalmist says, in the midst of the earth. In his own sovereign freedom, in his own remarkable ways, Jesus saves people. Think about how this thief experienced salvation in five ways. First of all, Jesus promised to save him immediately. 
He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today is a rich word in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus preached in Luke 4, and he says, today the Scripture has been fulfilled. He goes home with Zacchaeus, and he transfers that little mafia leader, and he says, today salvation has come to this house. And here he's looking at this thief on the cross, and he says, today. Jesus is good at today stuff. He specializes in the now. And this text helps us to see what happens to us when we die as believers. We are with Jesus. Death is an entrance into glory. Our bodies wait final resurrection, but our souls enter the presence of Jesus. And if you call upon the name of the Lord today, He will save you. He saved Him immediately. Second, He saved Him eternally. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. This word that speaks of blessedness, everlasting peace. It's a word that has an echo of the Garden of Eden, where our first parents lost this original home. The, the, the first Adam lost paradise, but now the second Adam, Jesus, has come to regain paradise and open up paradise so that we may experience it. He saves us immediately, eternally, thirdly, personally. He tells this thief, you will be with me in paradise. He just doesn't tell him, you will be in paradise. That's true but you will be with me in paradise because what makes heaven paradise is Jesus. And we're going to be with him in paradise. He saves him not just immediately and eternally and personally, but graciously. If ever there was a guy who could not claim any good works for his salvation, here is a guy. <laughs> he is the sample of all the rest. This guy's saved by grace. He doesn't know anything. He hasn't done any good works he knew very little theology. Hey, thief, have you ever heard of the Apostles' Creed? No. He never took the Lord's Supper. He never was, watch out, baptized. <laughs> Unless it rained, he might have had a little drizzle from heaven. But all he did was believe. All he did was cast his, himself on the grace of Jesus. That's good news. You know, one of my pastor friends and heroes, Alistair Beck, has a message that's circulated across the the World Wide Web, the internet machine, and where he's preaching on this thief. I wish I could do it with a Scottish accent, but this is the best I got. This is what Beck says in this sermon. He says, without the preaching of the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old Fort Lauderdale question, this was an old evangelism pamphlet he's referring to, if you were to die tonight and were to get entry into heaven, what would you say? If you were to, trying to get entry into heaven, what would you say? And, he, and Beck says, if you were to answer that in the first person, you've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I did this, because I did that. And he says, loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person. Because he, because he. And then he goes on, think about the thief on the cross. He says, I can't wait to find that fellow one day and ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were cussing out your friend, one moment. You'd never been to a Bible study. You'd never gotten baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership, and yet you made it. How did you make it? And he says, that's what the angel must have said, you know, like, uh, what are you doing here? And he says, I don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? Because I don't know. Well, let me go get my supervisor angel. And he goes and gets the supervisor angel, and he says, we just got a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? 
The guy says, I've never heard of it in my entire life. <laughs> well, well, let's go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. The guy's just staring at him. And eventually, in frustration, he says, well, on what basis are you here? And the thief says, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. I love the man on the middle cross. He said, I could come. He said, you can come. He's saved by grace. And finally, he's saved assuredly. Notice he says, truly I say to you. This is on the basis of Jesus' authority. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. He says, if you believe, truly I say to you, you will be with me today in paradise. Now this fits the whole thesis of the Gospel of Luke right from the very preface when he says, I'm writing these things that you may have certainty. Jesus wants us to have assurance. And he gives it to us in this story. So look how amazing Jesus is at saving people. As we sing in the hymn, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. There are two kinds of people at the cross, and there are two kinds of people in the world. We're faced with a decision of what will we do with the man on the middle cross. One person has put it well. One thief was saved so that no sinner might despair, but only one so that no sinner might presume. You see, at the believing thief, don't despair. Jesus will have you. But we look at the unbelieving thief and we say, don't presume. Don't presume on the last day Jesus is going to say, oh, all y'all just come on in. One thief has given us so that we would not despair. Believe in Jesus. The other one is saying, don't wait. Don't presume. Here is Jesus, our prophet, our priest, and our king. If you can look to him by faith and say, save me, you can experience the great benefits of salvation that includes uh, uh, above everything else, which includes Jesus himself, is yours. You can be in the them and praise God for that. The man on the middle cross said, I can come and you can too. Let's praise God for his grace. Father, we thank you as we bow our heads in humility and adoration mindful of all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus has said and all that Jesus will do. In light of all that He has poured out for us on the cross, we pour out our praise to You today. We thank You for such a great salvation. And Lord Jesus, as we prepare our hearts today to take the table, remind us once again of how great Your grace is, how sufficient Your death is, and how sure Your promises are. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.